Uh, if you would turn with me in your Bibles uh, today to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be looking at uh, a handful of verses together. So once you're in 1 Corinthians 15, find verse 3, and then please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. First Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then look over to verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. This Sunday, like every Sunday, we are going to be opening up, uh, once again, a text of Scripture, uh, examining it, looking into uh, the depth of this passage. And when approaching a topic like the resurrection, I must confess that there is often so much to say that it's hard to decide where to start and exactly what to say. Um, If it were not for Paul's helpful guide here, I fear that we would spend much time rambling and, and speculating, but not so much time getting anywhere. And so I think it's helpful that Paul, unlike me or unlike other theologians who would try to talk around the issue, gets straight to the heart of the resurrection, why it is important, and then begins to, from that point forward, extrapolate not only why it is important, but also what are the implications of that resurrection for us. So the one point or the one idea I want to examine together tonight is it's his resurrection and it is also our resurrection. When we were together on Thursday, for those of you who were able to join us, we looked at how on Friday he is convicted and we are also in that crucifixion and in that trial convicted of the same crimes. And so today we look now to his resurrection and the good news of that is that not only are we, is he resurrected out of the grave, but we also with him are resurrected from the grave. So with that being said, let's look at what Paul says is important about this. And then we will extrapolate what that implies for us as well. So beginning again in verse 3, Paul says that while there's much to be said about the resurrection, he's going to cut straight to the heart of the issue by saying in these words, For I deliver to you of first importance that which I also received. Now if you know the storyline of Paul, and you ever find yourself wondering, is the resurrection a good, historically reliable thing that occurred? You can think about what Acts tells us about Paul before he encounters the risen Christ. Namely, that Paul was on a single-handed mission to exterminate the early church. And on this mission to exterminate the church, a person who's not likely to come up with a doctrine of resurrection, a person who's not likely to stop what he's doing with the momentum that he has and pivot and turn to the very people that he is killing, a person like that is the very person who becomes the champion of the faith, 
who then later writes this letter that we have here. And then he says that he delivers of first importance something that he received. What he's claiming in that is that this is not a doctrine invented by Paul's mind, that this is not something that he thought up or that he studied and then he presented before the Jewish high council. This is something that he was unable to deny. This is something that was given to him, not something that he stumbled upon. This is not something of Paul's own imagination. This is not something of any of the disciples' imagination. It is something that all of them received from God. And when they receive it, they receive it as something which is of first importance. And what follows is a plain presentation of the gospel. And if any pastor or theologian or Christian tells you that the gospel is more complex than these two verses, you can ignore them. Because Paul tells us plainly that this is of first importance and then lays out for us the depths of the gospel in a matter of a couple of words. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. A simple declaration of the gospel, not one that is unique to Paul. Christ himself says that these things are found in the scriptures, that he, was, he would die, that he would be buried, and that he would be raised to new life. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it, he says. But the disciples hear all of what Jesus teaches them, and they still scatter when he is being tried. They still scatter at his crucifixion. And so it should surprise us when they all rally together again, and the only thing that could cause them to rally together again would be if their Messiah really was alive and walking around. These are not men who, at the moment of his trial, appear to be laying a later plot for them to come back and take over Jerusalem by storm. They look like men who are genuinely surprised as what has, for what is occurring. And so you might, you might ask yourself the question, well, if the gospel is this simple, how does everyone miss it? If it's really according with the scriptures, and these scriptures are not the, the New Testament, this is referring to the Hebrew Old Testament, if it's really according to these scriptures, then how did everyone miss what was being said? Well, we're given several reasons for that in the gospel. We're even given reasons for that in Luke's gospel towards the end, where Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with his disciples, disciples who don't know that it's Jesus. They can't quite make out who it is. And they're conversing with him, and they, they lament the fact that their Savior has been crucified, and he's now dead. And they're, they're stirring over these things. They're not really sure what to do. And Jesus doesn't tell them, oh, you should have gotten it. He once again takes them and walks them through, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, the things concerning himself in Scripture. And so you might ask the question, where in Scripture? And much like the general topic of the resurrection, it's hard to know where to begin in Scripture to tell you where to find it. You could look to Psalm 22 or Psalm 69 or Isaiah 53 or Daniel chapter 9, all of which contain direct prophecies of how the Christ is to be killed and then raised. But even more than just those specific prophecies, you could look to the general narrative arc of Scripture. As early as Genesis 3, you see that the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of Eve, but the seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. And then from that moment forward, the lineage and the dynasty of Eve's seed is traced throughout the lineage of Abraham, throughout the lineage of David. And we spent much time discussing that kingdom narrative of the text last week. 
So when he says, when Paul says here that it's according to the scriptures that these things are so, he's not saying that and then not citing his sources. He's saying that to an audience that would know all of these sources, all of this implication. It is difficult for us to defend the doctrine of the resurrection apart from the Old Testament. If we don't have the Old Testament, we cannot defend this text. We could rightly say that the apostles made this kind of stuff up and that they crafted together lofty prose and put together a nice doctrinal system, but 2,000 years before they start the doctrine of the resurrection, it's already laid out in Scripture. It's already there in a different language, one that they don't speak, from different generations, from different time periods in Israel's history, all anticipating and longing for the resurrection of the Savior. He's there the whole time. And so while you might be tempted to say it's new with them, I would encourage you first to read your Old Testament and see if it is so. And you might be surprised how much you find about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ in those verses. Paul says that Christ died for our sins, as was laid out in the text, that he was buried, and that he was raised to new life on the third day. The simplicity of that laying out of the gospel is also something that we could drown in if we were to examine each statement. Because not only did Christ die, but he had to die for a reason. We spent much time in Thursday uh, talking about this, but Christ is told to us by Peter to have borne in his body our sins on the tree. And Paul says the same thing here, that Christ died for our sins. He did not die because it was nice for him to die. He did not die as a demonstration of a good, benevolent God. He died because it was necessary for him to die. He died not because he loves us and the Father doesn't. He died because he and the Father and the Spirit all together had resolved to love their humanity so that he would go to die, that the Father would go to kill him, and that the Spirit would go to resurrect him on the third day. The triune God working together in chorus to save and redeem the humanity that was lost. And what's anticipated here from Paul is this simple statement that he was buried. Not only did he die, but he was buried. Unlike many of the modern objections to the resurrection of Christ, Paul is clear that it wasn't that he fainted and that he woke up later. It is not that he was appearing to be dead and then he came to life later. He died on the cross and he was also buried. And when you're getting buried, when you're being prepared for the burial ceremony, that is not a process that happens very quickly. Christ would have been handled and his body would have been prepared and put into the tomb. And so it is not as though he was overlooked and simply passed by and he woke up inside the tomb and began knocking and the soldiers opened the tomb and he walked out again. Paul is clear that he died and he was so dead that he was buried. And once he was buried and in the tomb for three days, then he rises. He was raised on the third day as is told to us in Scripture. Now there's many things that anticipate this third day resurrection but what's most interesting is that Christ himself tells us that the sign given to the generation, even those who he's not going to show miracles to, who he's not going to show wonders to, the sign given to all those people is going to be the sign of Jonah. 
And you'll notice in the story of Jonah, what happens is he's swallowed by the fish. And three days later, he's spat out by the fish to go preach to the Ninevites about all that God has planned to do for them. And Christ uses that picture as a picture of his own ministry, that his sign will also be the sign of Jonah, that he will go into the earth for three days and come out of it again, preaching the redemption of God, the repentance for sins, and the benevolence of God to delay his wrath, to turn back his anger, to still his hand, so long as they repent and believe. It's the same thing that Christ does for our sins. And Paul, then, when he lays out simply the gospel, when he lays out simply these truths here, he then begins to expand and then defend the resurrection. And his expanse and his defense of the resurrection is not something that he does as mere speculation. He argues that the bodily resurrection of Christ is an integral truth to what we believe and profess as Christians. You cannot be a Christian for Paul and say that Christ merely got up in our hearts or in spirit and now reigns in our minds and in our hearts. You have to say that he bodily got out of the tomb. And Paul argues that and defends that all throughout 12 to really the end of the chapter, verse 12. But I just want to look at a couple of verses, and again, we can't look at all of it. But we read there in verse 16, and I'd like to turn your attention there. And Paul is really at this point laying out the implications that we would have to say if we declare that Christ is not resurrected from the grave. He says, verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Evidently, there's a group of people in Corinth that believe or postulate that we, when we die, are not raised, but rather we join with him in spirit, so that our bodies stay behind, we go in spirit to him, and that is the best that we can hope for as Christians. And Paul says, don't you understand that if you cannot expect a resurrection bodily, you have to go backwards and say that Christ did not resurrect bodily. Often we understand the argument the other way around, that if Christ did not resurrect, then we are not to expect to resurrect. But he says that if we say Christ resurrected and then we say that we don't resurrect, then we have to go backwards and say that Christ didn't resurrect because Christ's resurrection necessitates our resurrection. Christ raising from the grave is termed here by Paul in verse 20 as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now that's a harvest illustration. And the first fruits of the harvest guarantee that the rest of the harvest is coming. If you bring in the first fruits of the harvest, all the other harvest is soon on the way. The first fruits are not something you reap in and then you don't reap the rest of the harvest. The first fruits are the early bloom and the rest of what you gather is following that of necessity. The first fruits tell you that the year was good, that the soil was ripe, that the plants are fertile and they are ready to be harvested. And the first fruits anticipate all the other fruits coming in. And so he says that if we cannot anticipate our own bodily resurrection, we have to go backwards and say that Christ did not bodily resurrect, because if he bodily resurrected, then we must hope for our bodily restoration and resurrection. This is different because what all the old resurrections have 
uh, all the old resurrections that have taken place, the ones that Elijah did, and even those who Christ brought back from the dead, even in his earthly ministry, in all those cases, they eventually return to the grave. They eventually die. They're resuscitated for a time, but eventually they go back to the grave. Paul's not talking about something like that here. He's declaring a new kind of humanity that comes out after the resurrection. Because Christ's resurrection is a resurrection to an immortal and imperishable body. He actually says that later in 1 Corinthians 15, he says in verse 42, So it is with the resurrection of the dead that what is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. He admits, just like any person dealing with reality would have to admit, that the resurrection seems difficult to understand because what we know about human biology and physiology, that people die. People don't live forever. And that's not something that we discovered later on and that Paul wasn't aware of. They were intimately equated with death, more acquainted with death than even you and I are. We are more under the delusion than Paul that we could live for a longer period of time. People in Paul's day died for all kinds of reasons because there's no medical intervention. There's no robust medical system. They have to deal with death. And he says that he admits that this body, this mortality, this humanity will die. But when it dies, it can anticipate for those who are in Christ a resurrection to a new kind of humanity. Something that is sown into the ground is perishable, but that which is raised is imperishable. That which is sown is sown in weakness. It's put into the ground in all of its feebleness. And it's raised in glory. It's raised in power. Now, how can Paul say that apart from speculation? He doesn't know. So far as he's concerned, he hasn't seen anyone resurrected in that kind of way before, save for Christ. So why does he say that if Christ resurrected, that that necessitates our resurrection? Why is it so important for Paul that if Christ comes out of the grave, you and I ought to guarantee our bodily resurrection? Well, part of it has to do with Paul's theology of the restoration of creation. One of the things that is laid for us in the Old Testament is that God creates a garden named Eden. And in this garden, he makes it perfect and beautiful and lovely with no corruption, no sin, no, no, uh, no death. And what happens in Eden is the fall takes place. And the rest of the unfolding of Scripture can rightly be seen as God restoring us back to Eden. And what Paul is saying is if Christ's death did what it showed us to, that it did, and if his resurrection is to be believed for all that it implies, that you and I can expect that we will be restored to a humanity like the good humanity that God created at first. His argument in Romans is that there's two kinds of humanities. There's Adam's humanity and there's Christ's humanity. And if you're in Adam, you can expect to die. But if you're in Christ, you can expect to be resurrected back from that grave to an imperishable body, to a body that is not frail and weak and broken with the effects of sin. This is not Paul speculating. This is Paul putting together different pieces of theology that were laid out in the Old Covenant. That the anointed one of God is to rule and reign forever. 
He's eternal. And if he's the first fruits, those who come after him are also like him in that way. That they have the same kind of body that he has. One that is immortal, imperishable. It does not see corruption. It does not die. It does not decay. A body like that is the kind of body that we're told to expect by Paul. And why is it that Paul is so bent on this? Because there's more than just the physical at play. The physical is extremely important, but there's more than just that at play. Paul tells us in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Why? Because you are still in your sins. And this is, I think, difficult for us to understand many times in Scripture. But if we are still in our sins, if we are still not justified, as it were, then you and I are to be pitied. That's his following argument. And if you follow this logic with me for a moment, there are times in Scripture where the crucifixion and the death of Christ are mentioned. And at those times, the full weight of justification is put, as it were, at the crux of the crucifixion. That the cross is the central turning point in human history, and that all of our theology, all of our belief, all of our faith rests on the cross. That that's where it was done and completed. And that is true. But what Paul is extrapolating here is maybe a nuance or a depth to that understanding of the cross. And it can be found most clearly in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. And if you want to see it, I encourage you to turn there with me. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He says in verse 25 that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. That is, he was delivered up for our sins, as we've discussed so far. But more than that, he was also raised for our justification. Now, what does it mean when he says he was raised for our justification? Is Paul saying that the cross dealt with one part of the problem and the resurrection dealt with the other? Not necessarily. But in the nuance, what he's saying is that when the cross happened, when all that took place at the cross occurred, none of that was guaranteed to actually pay the penalty. How do we know that the penalty is paid, that there's no outstanding balance? How do we know? Because Christ was raised back to life. Because after dealing with the full weight of sin for those who would believe, there was so much more righteousness left in Christ that he had to get him out of the grave. That there was more righteousness in Christ that there is sin in us. And so after God dealt with the full payment of sin in Christ's body, Christ can still come out of the grave because there's more righteousness in him than there is sin in you and me. And when we look at that truth, we notice that Paul's extrapolation to the resurrection is one that is so key that if we remove the resurrection from our theology, that if we look at Scripture, there, there's parts of Scripture, parables that Jesus did, stories that can be omitted. Even John tells us that not everything that he did is recorded. But not everything that he did is necessary for us to record. We can still have theology. We can still have an understanding of who he is with the things that we have. But let's say we lose some parts of those stories. Let's say we didn't collect the Gospel of Mark or we lost Luke for some reason. And we lose bits and pieces of these different books. Well, 
as it turns out, we can lose quite a bit of that and still have a good, robust theology of all that Christ did. But what is interesting is if you take the resurrection out of all these various stories, if you remove that piece of the theology, you lose almost all that it means to be Christian in the first century. You lose almost all of what it means to be Christian at all. Because the doctrine of the resurrection guarantees for us that the cross actually accomplished all that it set out to accomplish. And more than that, that since he's up and walking around in a new life, that you and I have hope not just that our debts are paid, but also that we have a new life in Christ. It's not as though we go before our debtor and we say to God, would you forgive us our debts? And he tells us he will dismiss them. And then he sends us now with a neutral account that we are now broke, but we don't owe anything at least. It's more than that. The resurrection is the side of the coin that says, not only did he die for our sins, not only did he deal with them, but more than that, now he's up and moving and living. And that is for us the picture and the sign that you and I can hope and long to be made into a righteous person one day for those who are in Christ. We have a hope not just to have our sins dealt with, but also to be made righteous. That's the guarantee of the resurrection. That's what Paul argues. He says that there's two people waging war inside of him, the old man and the new man. And the problem with the old man and the new man for Paul is that the old man is the part that was dealt with at the cross, and the new man is the one who's bursting forth into glory, bursting forth into righteousness in his body. And he's warring that thing out. And often I think when we talk about the resurrection, we would say something like, well, if the resurrection is all that it is, why doesn't it just happen right now? Why, when Christ comes out of the grave and we profess him to be Lord, when he saves us, why doesn't he just make us perfectly righteous at that moment? Why does it take time? Why does it take time? We have a little bit of a picture, if you like, of this in the Old Testament. You have the picture of Israel in the Exodus. It's one of the greatest uh, books in the Old Testament. There's so much going on in that book. There's great miracles, great stories you can learn from as a child and many that still stick with me to this day, but one thing that happens when you look at the Exodus narrative is you see something that when you look at the resurrection, you see a pattern or a type or a shadow of what is to be anticipated. In the Exodus, you have a people enslaved to a wicked king, Pharaoh. And these people are in bondage and slavery. They cannot free themselves from this bondage and slavery. They are uh, uh, brutally oppressed by this, but nevertheless, as it turns out, they don't actually consider themselves to be so oppressed. Because when Moses comes and tries to free them, they say, no, we're good here. We like it. We're fed. We have work to do. We have good lives. Yeah, he kills all our children, but it's good. You know, it's okay. It's not so bad. And what's interesting about that Old Testament narrative is even after Pharaoh is killed and his army is killed and they are led out of captivity by Moses and really led by God himself with the pillar and the cloud. What's interesting is how often in this freed state, Israel wants to turn and go back to Egypt. They want to go back to their sin. They want to go back to their slavery. They want to go back to their bondage. And then we look at that, and we look at us in the resurrection, and we, we, we ask the same question, right? Why, after being freed from the bondage of sin, why, after being freed from the powers of darkness, as Ephesians 2 tells us, we are slaves to darkness? Why, after being set free from all of that, 
Would any person who's actually redeemed want to turn back and go back to their former slavery? Well, it is observably true that people do want to return to their their former slavery. And it is also observably true that God's grace abounds so much so that he's patient with us even in our lust to go back. Even in our weakness where we turn and we look and we long for the things which we have set behind. Even when we have left things and confessed at some point that those things are less glorious than the things that I'm walking into. Those things are worth less to me than the things which I am longing for in Christ. Nevertheless, we still have this sinner complex within us, just as the Israelites have that slave complex within them. They don't know what it is to be free. They don't know how to not behave like slaves. And in God's grace, he gives them Moses, and he gives them signs, and he gives them wonders, and he gives them bread, and he gives them grace upon grace upon grace, so that they can begin to know what it's like to not be a slave. So they, begin, they can begin to see what it's like to not be in bondage. And in his grace, he continues to walk through them generation after generation after generation, showing them what it is to be set free. And the story of Israel, though, is eventually they turn and they fall all the way back down. They get bondage to Babylon. They get bondage to Assyria. They're not ultimately set free. And what Paul is telling us here is that we are not like the Israelites in this way. That our guaranteed resurrection, our guaranteed justification because of the resurrection, is a guarantee that one day we will have bodies, we will have a righteousness, we will have a glorified state like the one that Christ is leading us into. So when Paul is warring in Romans 7 about the old man and the new, it's part of the journey. It's part of the process to glory. It's part of his grace to show us that he can walk with us even in our sinful state as we are a redeemed people. As Luther said, we are simultaneously justified and still sinners. And God is okay with that. Because there's a guarantee in the resurrection that we will one day be like him. John says in his letter to, uh, in 1 John, he says, we will see him, and when we see him, we will be made like him. And we long for the day that we see him and we become like him. So, more than just a journey, more than just a guarantee along that journey that we will be made like him, more than that, what is the implication of the resurrection for us as we live day to day in our sinful and current weak bodies? What are some implications that we can draw out from this? First and foremost, we can confess that what we experience on a day-to-day basis in our bodies is unlike what we can long for in eternity one day. We experience regularly brokenness and sin and shame and all manner of corruption and evil and wickedness. We, can, we experience so much pain, so much heartache, so much brokenness in this world. And we look to God and we say, why is it so? And he guarantees us that one day it will not be so. One day there will be no pain, there will be no death, there will be no sickness, no disease, no soreness after you wake up in the morning. There will be no sign of the former corruption. It will be a faint and distant memory. That what we experience in this day is so unlike what we ought to long for and ought to experience one day that we can't even really compare the two. We can know what we're missing, but we can't really know what it'll be like to not be missing it. And that's okay because God tells us that we will understand once we're there. Paul says that once we see him, we'll know all things. But until that day, we don't. 
So we can long for our bodies to be made right. We can long for us to be freed from sin. We can long for ourselves and those who we know and love to be set free from bondage to sin. And we can long for that while knowing that they might still wrestle with and we might still wrestle with all of the sins which we entered into redemption with. Because there's no guarantee in this life that all of those sins are put away. There's a guarantee that in the next life they're gone. The guarantee in this life is that our righteousness is not based on ourselves, it's based on Christ. So we don't bank on how we're doing on the journey to get into heaven. We bank on what he has already done for us to get into heaven. And we know that in heaven he will make us glorious and perfect and wonderful in ways that we can't even imagine. But there's another implication to that. It's lived out by Christ. It's lived out by the apostles. It ought to be lived out by you and I. Which is that we can give of ourselves, of our bodies, of our material existence to other people in a way that would seem foolish to this world. And that's because this is not all there is. And this goes beyond just like material wealth. We can give of our time to people to try to reach them for the gospel. We can give of our time to people to try to meet with them and disciple them. We can give of our time to people to sit with them in their pain and pray for them. And why can we do all those things? Because we have an eternity of a glorified body that's guaranteed for us. So we can give as much of this time, as much of this life away to other people as we want. Because it's not squandering. It would be squandering that time if this is all that there is. That's why Paul says we of all people would be most to be pitied if we don't have a hope for the life to come because we are told to spend our time giving our lives away. We are told that we are blessed if we are poor. We are told we are blessed if we are reviled. And how can all that be true if there's not a hope in the life to come? But because there's that hope in the life to come, we can give of ourselves freely to whoever may need it, whoever may require it, even to the point of death, as many missionaries have done. They can give their bodies over to be beaten, to be abused, to be broken, and ultimately even to be killed sometimes. And they can do that knowing that they're not squandering their bodies. And that's so, so different from our world today because our world says that our bodies are what we have. And so we should care for them. We should watch out for them. But not in like a healthy way. We should lust over our bodies and long to make them perfect and right and beautiful. And we should want our bodies to stay that way. And we, it's bad if we get old. So we should, we should put all kinds of medication and all kinds of surgery into our bodies to make sure we don't show any signs of decay. And we should covet our bodies to the point where we will neglect hanging out with friends because we can't go eat what they eat because that would be bad for our bodies and we can't neglect sleep because that would be bad for our bodies. And there's a, there's a wisdom in just caring for your body, being a steward, but there's an idolatry in saying this body is more worth, relation, more worth uh, it to me than relationships are. It's more worth it to me than anything else is. And there's a kind of idolatry in that that our world really readily embraces. Because our world lives under the assumption that this is all that there is. This life is all that there is. And then you meet Paul in first century Judea. And you realize that by the time he's writing these letters, he can not really walk too well anymore. He's got bruises all over his back. He's been beaten time and time and time again. And he doesn't seem to care too much about any of that. Because he has a guarantee that he gets a new body in a glorified state. In fact, if you look at many of those in church history who are giants of the faith, you realize how many uh, bodily ailments that they have, how many broken 
parts of their body that there are. This is not a healthy bunch of people, but they can do mighty things for the king, and they can do that guaranteed that they will have a body on the other side. You and I, when we have injuries, we carry them for the rest of our life, and it's kind of downhill after the age of 30, 32. That's when your cells really stop regenerating at a good enough time. And you are... (laughs) (laughs) And so our bodies are... (laughs) not made to be 100, 120, they don't make it that far. And for most of the back half of that lifespan, it's kind of um, injury mitigation, dealing with the effects of the corruption and just trying to pump the brakes slowly so we don't stop abruptly. It's really what we're trying to do. That's what most of modern medicine is. And God promises a whole different kind of eternity, not one where we just kind of pump the brakes as we slowly coast to the stop, but one where we have a building of momentum into eternity and into glory. It's a different kind of paradigm. It allows us to not covet our bodies, to give of them to others. It allows us to not covet our time, to give of that to other people. It allows us to not covet things which are just material because we are guaranteed even more than a resurrected body. We're guaranteed a new Eden, a wealth which cannot be explained a kind of extravagance and glory and peace which cannot be described, a peace that surpasses all understanding. So we don't pursue in this life happiness or joy or peace as ultimate ends in and of themselves because we're told that in the next life we get to enjoy that kind of stuff. We pursue Christ to enjoy Him. We pursue God and intimacy with Him. We pursue relationship with the Holy Spirit. We pursue study of God's Word to meditate and saturate on those truths. Because as Paul says, you know, physical exercise is of some value, but godliness is of value for both this life and the life to come. So we have that to look forward to in the resurrection. But even more than that, even more than that, because Christ has been raised, has been raised we are no longer in our sins. And that does not mean that we won't still struggle with sin. What it means is that we are no longer in bondage to our sin. Before Christ, before faith, before that hope, we are not only sinners, but we can't break ourselves free from that sin. We can maybe see that there's a problem, we can maybe long for a solution, but there is no solution. In Christ, we are put back to a position where we can look at sin and God and we can say, I choose this option, not that. Because we are now in Christ, we're no longer in our sins. And that doesn't mean we choose perfectly. He walks with us graciously as we fail time and time again. But what it means is that we have a hope. One day when we pray, we can actually pray, Lord, put my sin to death. Lord, free me from my broken will that wants things apart from you. We can long for that, and it's a good longing because God tells us that it's guaranteed in the resurrection. When Christ comes to his apostles in his resurrected state, it makes them a selfless kind of people. They're willing to get out of their comfort zone, no longer hiding in homes, and now they're getting the gospel out. And I wonder if that's because of how much they believed in the resurrection, how sure they were of the resurrection. And in a day like today where it's more popular to maybe be embarrassed of the resurrection or talk about the resurrection with Christians, but not so much outside of those circles, If we really believe this to be true, I wonder if it would just fundamentally shift 
how we do life. We would live like there is eternity, but not like everything that we do in this life leads us into that eternity and we can carry everything with us. We would live selflessly. We would live in community. We would live in fellowship with God above all other things. We would pursue careers to the glory of God, but we would not be consumed by those careers to neglect God and Christian fellowship. We would live our lives in a totally different kind of way. Not just with a hope that it might be so one day, but with a guarantee that it might be so one day. And there's a, it's a totally different kind of thing. It's the difference between being suspicious that we might be freed from sin and being able to look at our broken sin and have confidence that one day that will no longer be a struggle. It's the difference between thinking you're going to be able to do this and knowing that you're going to be able to do it. And that's not on our own strength. Hear me on this carefully. This is not on our own strength. It's all on the basis of his resurrection, which means it's not him resurrecting and then showing us how to go so that we can walk into that. It's him resurrecting. It's him being raised. It's him who was crucified. It's him who bore our sins. It's him who lives our life. It's his spirit who dwells within us to put those new desires in us. That's Old Testament and New Testament. It's all him from beginning to end. And when you recognize all that depth of theology in the resurrection, and there's so much more to say about it, there's so much to talk about when it comes to putting together the narrative of the resurrection. How is it so? What are the other explanations? How could we defend this doctrine? And those are all discussions worth having. But for this time, for now, we do not have time for those discussions. So I want you to leave with this one idea. His resurrection out of the grave is also our resurrection out of sin, out of bondage, out of death. When he beats death, all of his children beat death as well. When he conquers sin and Satan and those dominions and those powers, you and I do as well. We don't have side battles now to battle with sin so that we might conquer it. It's already defeated. And we just need to keep reminding ourselves of that by studying the word, by prayer, by fellowship, by singing praise to God who set us free to be able to live this life in marvelous new creation. And his resurrection is a guarantee of our physical resurrected bodies. Do we not declare with the church of old that we believe in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who has died, buried, rose again on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Don't forget that piece, the resurrection of the body. It is the centerpiece of Christian doctrine. It, with the cross, complements and extrapolates and builds together to a robust theology of what it looks like to be in eternity. And time will fail us to discuss all those things. So know this, when he comes out of the grave, you do as well. And when he puts sin to death, it includes yours. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for all that you are. You are a God unlike any other deity that is sp spoken about in any other religion. You are holy and perfect, and glorified, 
worthy of all worship, worthy of all praise. There's no competition. And Lord, when we read your words and we see your son in his life, we acknowledge that all of that praise is, is worthy of you. All of that glory is befitting of you. It is good for you to be clothed in majesty and dominion. It is good for you to receive the praise of the saints. Lord, help our hearts to sing to that truth as well. Lord, we pray that your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That you would reign in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions, in our will, in our speech. That you would be glorified here tonight as we sing with worship. And you would be glorified as we go out into the world to make disciples, to proclaim your truth, and that we might better love you by your grace. Lord, help us to walk in obedience. Help us to walk in likeness with you. And give us grace when we fail, for surely we will. And help us to not be discouraged by those failures, because we have a guarantee founded in you and all that you've done. We pray all these things to the glory of your name. Amen.